I'm going to share the scripture from my Pixel Bible today. Is that where it's found? You know, it, wouldn't it be a lot holier if I had the original scrolls? You would feel warm and gooshy all over if I read them from them, wouldn't you? Because wouldn't that make it real? And I was thinking this week, what, what would really make it real? Where's, where is the Word of God? It's where it always has been. It's been there from the beginning. So as I read the Word of God, and it's, it's going to be from Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 through 26, it's not the saying of the words that makes it real. You know, they've tried to destroy the Word down through the years, but it can't. Even if you burn the Bible, you don't destroy the Word of God. So what makes it real is the Holy Spirit. So as I read this, please allow the Holy Spirit to make these scriptures real. So I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh craves what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit contrary to the flesh. They're opposed to one another, so you do not do what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The acts of the flesh flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Idolatry and sorcery, hatred, discord, jealousy, and rage. Rivalries, divisions, factions, and envy. Drunkenness, carousing, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us walk and step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying one another. How to do nothing. How do we live in this reality where Jesus does all the work to save us? And part of the answer to that, today anyway, has everything to do with two pictures. I'm going to throw one up and then another. And this first picture is, uh, some of you can... Uh, it's not a very great picture, but you can tell it's a Christmas tree, right? And it's, it's artificial. But it looks very much alive. It looks very much that it's filled with energy and light and spark and, you know, sparkles and twinkles and all kinds of decorations make it look vibrant. It, make it makes it look like, like it would be lasting. But we know that it's really not, right? January always brings this kind of bleak time where we... We put trees like this away in boxes and nothing had ever been growing on them in the first place. It was all artificial. It was all fake. And even though it looks living, it's really not. Okay. Here's the second picture. Um, This is a picture of uh, an apple tree, actually, that is uh, in a little pot ready to be planted. And to be honest, this, this really doesn't look like much, does it? There's, there's really not a lot going on with it. It's rather ordinary. Uh, it's not much to look at. But we know it's an apple tree, and we know what the potential is of an apple tree. 
And while the artificial Christmas tree gives us kind of this shiny object syndrome for a few weeks, the, the, the apple tree, if we plant that, if we care for it, if we give it the right environment, it will, it will grow and it will change and it will bear fruit year after year after year after year. Uh, the research that I was able to pull up says it is not uncommon for an apple tree to bear fruit for a hundred years. Artificial tree versus fruit tree. Which is more important? Which will last? Which will make a difference in our life? Which will give life to us? We, We hardly have to ask that question, right? We know it's that tree as opposed to the first. So in our section of text here, Paul is going to call us to be like the second picture. And what that means is that we can't stay like this. That's not what you think of when you, when you think apple tree. The apple tree that's in that state has to change. You never start with the finished product. And in, Christians, in Christian life, it's the same. Christian life is not a stagnant state. It's about moving from where we are to when Christ found us to where he wants us to be and to where we reflect Jesus in everything that we do. And it's this progression that we move from death to life. And it's not a switch. It's not an overnight thing. It is a gradual, gradual process. And that's what Paul kind of points, it to, points to here. And I want to frame it up this way today. Uh, it's all about change. And so we're going to talk about the call to change. We're going to talk about the progress of change. We're going to talk about the way to change and then the image of change. And in each of these sections, I want to give you a word that you can latch onto for that section. So the first, the call to change. And the word that I want you to latch onto is spirit, spirit. Now, there is an unwritten rule when you get two or more people together that goes something like this. And I think we experienced a little of it just a few minutes ago. People hate change. That's the line that we're told, okay? Right? Organizations are constantly crippled by this notion, and the ones, the organizations who aren't crippled by it have kind of realized that this, in fact, is a crazy idea. This idea that people don't like change. Now, uh, that may come as a surprise to you because you may be sitting out there going, wait a minute, I don't like change. I mean, I think there were two people out there that liked change when we asked earlier. And yet, if all I have to do is sit here and point out a few things about this last week, did you change your clothes this last week? Hopefully you did, right? For your sake, for other people's sake. Did you change your channels? Probably. Did you change your profile picture on Facebook? Probably. You changed your password. Okay, now that one you probably didn't want to change, but they made you change it, and so you kind of had to, but that'll, that'll play in anyway. It's almost as if you do like change. The truth is, we really love change. We change all the time. We get new houses. 
We get new cars, we get new clothes, we get new phones, we get new hobbies, we get new light bulbs. Do you have the LED light bulbs yet? You got to get the LED light bulbs, right? We get all these new kitchen gadgets, we get new TVs, we get new Facebook friends, we get new apps, we get new recipes. The reality is we love to change. And the thing that makes the difference in whether we change or not is us. That's, that's the big deal. See, it isn't really true that people don't like change. The truth is, people change all the time when they decide it's in their best interest to change. And then they love it. And so, in 16 and 17, Paul starts us off in this section with a definite battle. There's a conflict. There's a war going on. And this war is against, he says, on one hand, there's the, the desires of the flesh, and then on the other hand, there is the spirit. And this word is against. These two things are against. They oppose each other. And we need to correctly define our terms. On one side, we have flesh. The, the Greek word is sarx, and it means, it's, it means physical, but it's not merely physical. Um, because, and that's important because we need to understand that our body, our, our physical presence isn't sinful in and of itself. And sometimes when we come to the scripture and we read the flesh as opposed to the spirit, then we can come away with this idea that, um, that uh, phys- all of our physical nature is, is a bad thing. That's not it at all. We're, we're not talking about merely the physical It's better if we put it this way, that our flesh is just our desire to go away from God. Our flesh is our sin desire. It's our sinful heart. It's the parts of our heart that we haven't given over fully to the gospel yet, and we're still trying to call the shots with it. That's the flesh. That's the sinful desire. And it is opposed to the spirit. On the other side is the spirit. It's the renewed Christian heart. It's made new by the Holy Spirit. And before we met Jesus, we had this sinful nature in us that ruled the day because it was unopposed. But when we meet Jesus, now because of our faith and in baptism, the Spirit enters our lives. uh, And he tries to start sweeping out the dust bunnies in our heart. That's what he wants to do. The Spirit calls us to live differently than we've been used to. He calls us to, here's the word, change change. And this new nature that he wants to pull us to is exactly the opposite of our ingrained instinct that we want to do. And so the Spirit has this new path for us. The Spirit calls us to change. And at every turn, what he's going to try to do is to show us that this change is, in fact, in our best interest. And, in fact, if you make these changes, you will love them and you'll be better for it. In fact, not to change would be the worst thing that you could do. Second is the progress of change, the progress of change. In verses 19 to 21, Paul dives into a list. He gives us a list. It's the works of the flesh. It's a list that uh, when we, ha- when we uh, operate by way of our sinful desires, that sin nature that is so ingrained with us in us that stood unopposed for so long. If we live that way, there are certain traits that will naturally come about. And then he gives us in 
verse 22 and 23, a second list, which are, which are the things that will come about in our life if we choose to follow the Spirit. And the two, two lists, a lot of times, are framed up as opposing, conflicting realities. And of course, they could be seen like that. But I want to see them from a different angle today. I want, I want you to see that this, I think, is Paul's whole vision of what happens as somebody enters the family of Christ through faith and in baptism. Because in all of our journeys, there are stages of change and growth, and the end result is this second list. It looks like, well, it looks like what a finished apple tree would look like with fruit. But you never start there, right? And so, Paul, I think, is giving us kind of a progression. In the beginning, before Christ, people are in the condition of flesh, meaning they are governed by the desires of their nature, their sinful desires that naturally take them away from God. They're, they're born into human families. They're born in certain places with certain ethnic and cultural and language expectations. And so, if you're born in Bourbon County, America, uh, there are sexual norms and um, sexual expectations of morality, and those are just, uh, just one area, right? And those are quite different from those you might expect on the East Coast or the West Coast or in Europe or in some other country. And these determine who people are, how they function, and what they run after. And, and before we meet Christ, those are the only governing factors in our lives. And so, People use them to run after whatever they think is best to run after. And if these desires are pursued to the fullest extent, they're never left, um, uh, they're never, they never go unchecked, then Paul says that the natural outcomes of doing that are no surprise. They are the traits given to us in the first list. And there are 15 words in that first list. A lot of them are... Well, they're sins of people who don't really know God, and we would expect that, right? They're easy to distinguish. But then I want you to look closely at eight of them. Words like this, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Think about those words. And let me ask you this, if you walk into any church anywhere, are those absent? No. Unfortunately, they're not. Unfortunately, they are everywhere. It's not just this church or the church down the road. It's every church. Why? Because there are people in every church and people are about enmity and strife and jealousy and fits of anger and rivalries and dissensions and decision and divisions and envy. And a lot of times those things are more present inside the church than out. And so the point here is that Paul is not picking on people who don't know Jesus. He's not just picking on those people with this list. He's picking on church people with this list. Religious people are in the same boat because we're all eaten up by this spiritual deadness that leads to pain and ends up destroying us because we choose to follow a nature that is contrary to God's nature. 
And so just a quick glance at that list kind of impresses upon us that this is not really a happy and productive, thriving place for society to be, right? If we leave ourselves to our own devices, this is kind of where gravity takes us and we call the shots ourselves and this list is where we end up. And more importantly, Paul ends with this phrase. He, he ends this list with verse 21. He says this, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And a phrase like that is pretty easy for us to get all worked up about, but I want you to think about really what is going on here. When God comes to establish his rule for eternity, the people who have governed themselves with no opponents, they've never fought any inner battle within them. They've always chosen themselves over God. They've never, they've never created this discipline in their life to do anything except follow the urges that they had at the time. When God establishes his kingdom that will last for eternity, do you think that those people will fit it? The answer is pretty easy. It would be really surprising if they did fit what God was going after. That's not the kind of world God is going for. But then the gospel comes into the picture. And through the gospel, where Jesus sacrifices himself and provides payment for the penalty of all these sins on the list, we gain a right standing with God. And it's as if we've never done any of those things on the list, even though we're still about those things. When we come to Jesus... Even, if, even that that's what our world still looks like, right along with Jesus is a right standing with God. And in baptism, we also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's the, the Holy Spirit that begins to live inside of us and is not content to let us operate in such a way as to bring about all the things on the first list. He's just not. that. Those things he knows result in pain. They result in death. He doesn't want that for any of us. And so God and his son, Jesus Christ, and his Holy Spirit are interested in changing us, in making us new and different, in reshaping us into people who are actually fit for the heaven that God is going to establish for all eternity. And you can see quite clearly the reason we need to change. It is in our best interest to do so. And the Holy Spirit and his lead calls us into new action. And these uh, are marked, uh, a way of marking our progress. Paul calls them fruit. And it takes us to the second list. He lists nine qualities that no one can really do effectively unless they're follow, if they're following their own prompts in life. But progress is made towards the qualities on the second list when we give more and more and more control over to the Spirit. When the Spirit is at work in us, then this fruit that he lists begins to appear. And we begin to change into people who match up with the kingdom that God wants to build. Of course, this list is probably familiar to you. You maybe have heard it before. Uh, they are signs of spiritual life. Um, both of these lists, we could spend uh, complete sermons just on these lists and actually just on each little trait in the list. And maybe someday we'll do that. But just quickly, on this second list is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, 
self-control. And you can see right away that there's a big difference between the lists, right? It's as big a difference as the difference between the artificial tree and the apple tree. And so the course Paul lays out here is kind of a progression. It's a progression for true change in our life. First of all, I start out where I am my own Lord, and then the gospel comes into my life, and I meet Jesus, and I make him my Lord, and I'm saved by grace through faith and baptism for good works, and then the Spirit helps me make changes so that I'm no longer my own Lord, but now Jesus is. And every day, he's more and more my Lord, and I'm less and less my own Lord. And that is the progress. That's the path. And the more corners of our heart that we can get through that path, down that process, the more mature we are, and the more we will mirror God's nature, and the more we will line up with the world that God is creating for eternity, we could say it this way, the more fit for heaven we will be. The the more we will look like a fruit tree, full of fruit, ready to give life to those around us. And I want you to note this. This is where we get this progression thing, that when Paul starts in verse 18, he says, those who are led aren't, are not led by the Spirit are under the law. So if, you don't, are, if you're not being led by the Spirit, you are still under the law. What's the whole book of Galatians about? Paul is trying to call the Galatian Christians out from under the law. And so that's where you start if you don't know Jesus. But by the time we get down to the end of the fruit of the Spirit list, what does Paul say? He says, against such things there is what? No law. That's the progression. We want to get from out from under the law to a point where we're operating with no law because we can operate from no law. When you operate with love and joy and peace and patience and all of those fruit, when that's your standard, you don't need a law. That's easy plan to lay out, but it takes a lifetime of execution. And so how do we do that? How does this work? And, and uh, this is the way to change. And the, the word that I want you to remember in the way to change is the word adore, adore, adore. Uh, I, I think I skipped over the uh, word that I need you to remember in the second one. It's law, okay, law. Uh, but in this third one, the word I re- want you to remember is adore. How is it possible to change? How do I move from one list to the other? And it's, it's not just giving my life to Jesus. That's not what we're talking about. That's not all it is. There are plenty of Jesus-following, saved people spending lots of time on the first list. I'm one of them. And vice versa, there are a lot of people who don't know Jesus at all that are quite loving and quite gentle, to be truthful. And so it's not about salvation here. It's about growth. It's about maturity. It's about sanctification. How do I get to the point in my life where fruit is a normal thing instead of the deadness that would result if I just did my own thing? How do I get to the point where I'm not just an artificial tree but a fruit tree and it's, it's found here? Look at verse 16. Paul says that he, he doesn't say do not gratify the desires of the flesh. He says you will not gratify the desires of flesh. There's a big difference. The answer can't, because of what he writes here, the answer can't be just to try harder. 
There's something else below. There's a deeper discipline that's the main target if we want a lasting, real change. And the key is found in the word desires. It's a, it's a word that's used in verse 16. It's used in verse 17. It's used down in verse 24. And this word becomes the fulcrum that determines which way we tip, one way or another. It's the word epithumia. And epithumia, in older versions, if you're reading the King James, it says lust, okay? For the lust of the flesh. Uh, I don't have my nice 16th century King James voice going on, but you can imagine it in your head, right? Um, and all of those kind of old words, even, our, even the ESV says the desires of the flesh, and all of those are kind of unhelpful, and they're unhelpful because they're partially correct. Um, if we divide the word into its parts, we get thumia, and that's in fact desires, but then we have this, this little uh, add-on in the front, epi, epi, and uh, epi means in addition to or over and above, and so uh, if you're reading a book, sometimes you'll come to the end and there will be an epilogue, right? Okay? And what is an epilogue? Well, two words there is uh, over and above and logos, which is word, epilogue. So they are words over and above the words in the book. In other words, it's the story after the story, or there's other stuff to write, right? And so epithemia is the desires over and above the desires, Uh, We could put it this way. They are super desires. They are abnormal desires. Or we could make it simple and we could just say they are over desires. And it's our over desires that we have to focus on. And all of our resources have to go there if we want to change. The logical thing when we start thinking about those things that we over desire is to think that we over desire bad things. In our life, maybe... We are concerned with the bad things that we do. I, I really, I, I maybe drink too much and maybe that's an over-desire so I shouldn't do that. Or I shouldn't hit people when I get mad. Or I worry too much, that's an over-desire. I shouldn't want to desire those things and so I won't. And so I'm going to grit my teeth and I'm going to try really hard to quit. Okay? But here's the thing. What if our over-desires are not the desires for bad things? What if Paul is talking about our over-desires, our epithemia for good things in our life? What if that's the problem? You see, we all have things in our life that are important to us. Uh, They're good things. They are blessings from God. They are gifts from Him, gifts that He's given. And I want you to think about all of those good things in life that you desire. You desire people people to respect you. You desire people to love you. You desire happiness in your life. You desire joy in your life. You desire kids in your life, maybe, or family in your life. You desire food. You desire sex. You desire accomplishments in your life. There are all kinds of things that we could throw out that are very fine gifts, but think about what happens when we start to over-desire them, when we put them on a level that they were never created and intended for. We make them overly important. We seek them too much because at the end of the day, we think that's what will make us complete. That's what will make us valuable. That's what will show everybody that I'm worth something. That's what will save us. And so we over-desire even these good things in our lives. And Paul says, when we do that, 
it's impossible for it not to lead to one of the, the things on the first list. And so what do we do? What do we do about that? And the answer is that the solution stems from what you hold as the thing that will make you acceptable. What is that thing that you over-desire? What is that thing that you adore? And that's what you have to change. We could say it this way, you have to change the thing you adore. We could say it in a really corny way, to win the war, change what you adore. Thank you. Thank you very much. I worked all week on that. Yeah. If you want to lose weight, you have to begin to adore broccoli more than cookies. That's just how it works, right? And it's the same in Christian life. It's pretty much that simple. Whenever the Bible talks about change, it talks about the same two things. We can find it here, we can find it in Romans 8, we can find it in Colossians 3, we can find it in Hebrews chapter 12. Whenever we are told as Christians, here's the pattern, here's how to change, we're always given the same two things. Number one, we have to crucify our over-desires. We have to think, find those things that are important to us, that are more important to, to us than Jesus, that are created, that are pulling us away from God, creating those things in our life that cause deadness and demote them. We have to crucify them. We have to look at those things that are important to us and say, in light of the cross, why do I care about this so much? If I have a Savior who would die for me and love me that much, then why am I running after this thing? Why is it so valuable in my life? Why is it the thing that I think will save me? And we need to change what we adore. We need to change and adore the cross. Demote that thing. Crucify it and take it to the cross. And then number two, the second thing that we're always given after we demote that thing, after we crucify it and take it to the cross, is to live by the Spirit. Stay in step with the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. These over-desires are what cause destruction in our lives, but... Look at also in the text who has these kind of, these same kind of desires. Paul says in verse 16 that the Spirit also has these kind of desires. He's very careful about how he words it. But he adores Jesus. The Spirit worships Jesus. The Spirit runs after Jesus. The Spirit points everyone to Jesus. And so keeping in step with the Spirit, living by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit does not mean only try harder. It means worship. It means adore Jesus because He is the source of your acceptance. He is the source of your worth. He is the source of your salvation, not those other things that you've been over-desiring and running after. Over-desire what the Spirit over-desires, which is Jesus Himself. And the Spirit wants to show you the beauty of Jesus. And to the extent that you see it, you will be free from your over-desires. And so, doing nothing today is this. Doing nothing is, I turn from and I turn to. I crucify that thing that I'm over-desiring and I turn towards the Spirit and I run towards the cross. I run towards Jesus because that's where the Spirit is telling me to go. And secondly, doing nothing means I run after the Spirit 
uh, I run after what the Spirit runs after. And those two things are always the thing that we have to do if we want to, what's the word for the day? Change, change. Last week, I was out uh, checking some beehives that I have, and um, I am, trust me, I am only the beeke- a beekeeper in the sense that I don't want them to get away. Stay. <laughs> uh, I've tried to put leash- leashes on it, on them. That didn't work too well. Um, but I'm out there checking on my bees, and there's this little grove of trees and uh, where they are. And I realized that uh, one of these trees is just loaded with these black little berries, and I've never noticed that before. So I pluck one of them off, and I pop it in my mouth, and uh, surprisingly, it is really su- is super good. And so I don't think too much about it. And so later, my dad comes out because the bees are at his place. I mean, I don't want them in my backyard. I don't want to get stung. Come on. Um, so I keep them there, and uh, I said, hey, did you know you had a fruit tree here? And he said, what do you mean, fruit tree? Uh, I didn't know I had a fruit tree back here. That's what he said. And uh, they have lived on the property for a long time, right? But they've never uh, knew they had a fruit tree back there because it had never, to our knowledge, produced any fruit. So we did some research, came to find out, come to find out it's a mulberry tree, and um, the fruit's pretty good, and so we've been harvesting fruit from the mulberry tree. Now, it's not that they didn't know that the tree was there, it's that they didn't know it was a fruit tree. They had never noticed the fruit before because it had never fruited. And so here, 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 here it is, all of a sudden, a mulberry tree doing its thing, right? It's, it's, it's doing what it's expected to do. I'm not sure what I said that was funny, but that's okay. That's all right. I, I will play the tape back, and I'm sure I'll figure it out. Okay. Um, so the final picture Paul gives us is an image of change, an image of change. And the word to remember is fruit, fruit. <laughs> and Paul is very intentional about this picture. Um, he says the second list is the fruit of the Spirit. And if he uses fruit for the second list, then we would have expected him to use a term, uh, you know, kind of stay with the same metaphor and use the, a term like weeds or something in the, in the first list. But, but he doesn't do that. Because the first list, he says, is a list of works. Why? Because the first list is what you do when you're under the law. And Paul mixes metaphors here because the works of the flesh are things that you do. But the fruit of the Spirit is something you just open yourself up to. Tim Keller, in his commentary on Galatians, talks about the nature of fruit and how fruit relates to change. And and why Paul picks this picture uh, when he tries to get his point across. And Keller says, number one, change is internal. We cannot, through our own effort, go about making ourselves loving and joyful and peaceful as if I'm going to make myself loving. I'm going to be a more peaceful person. Um, We can't do that any more than the mulberry tree stresses about producing mulberries. I hope I can produce mulberries. No, it's not that. It's just in the right conditions. The tree's ability to produce, produce mulberries is built in to the very nature of the tree itself, that very first seed that was planted in the soil 
told the tree that there would one day be fruit. It's the same for us. It's natural. It's not, to not produce mulberries would be a surprise. And, and for a Christian who has the spirit, who has the seed of God's nature inside of us, it would be a surprise if we kept running after Jesus and kept in step with the spirit, it would be a surprise not to produce fruit. Secondly, change is symmetrical. It's symmetrical. Um, and one important thing to note about verse 22 is that it's not the fruits of the Spirit. That's, that's an often, you know, uh, mistake that people make. But it is fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. It's a singular subject with a plural predicate. It, is, it drives English teachers nuts because it's kind of like saying, he went to the park with themselves. <laughs> that doesn't work. But Paul does it on purpose. Singular fruit with plural predicates. It means that there's one complete fruit made up of all of these different traits. And so love and joy and peace and patience and all of those are just different parts of the same whole. Every trait is just one different way of looking at the whole thing. And so what does that mean? It means all of the traits are interconnected. They're all symmetrical. And what that means is this, if we fail too much at any one of these traits, we fail at all of them. The mulberry tree doesn't have fruit on just one branch. The mulberry tree has fruit everywhere. And so, the sobering thing to do today is to go through that list of nine things and pick out the thing that you're the worst at. And that is your level of spiritual maturity. That's where you're at, because they're all interconnected. Number three, change is gradual. That's implied in the word fruit. Fruit is never a sudden thing. You can't ever see botanical growth if you just sat out with your lawn chair and watched the mulberry tree. There's just, you just can't, you can't see it, right? You can't see it happening. It's like your lawn. You, you mow on a Friday, and you can't see the grass growing, I mean, I guess you could sit out there, but it would, you, just, you still wouldn't really see the grass growing. But by the next Friday, you know the grass has grown. I have, I have to mow it again. You, it's slow. It's gradual, right? Love, joy, peace, patience to develop those things. That's why patience is in there. It takes a while. And some seasons may be full of growth. Other seasons may be really winter-ish in your life. But it's a, it's a process that's kind of mysterious and seasonal and invisible to us. And then one day, maybe even years into it, all of a sudden, look, there's fruit. There's fruit. Finally, change is inevitable. Because this is the fruit of the Spirit, there absolutely will be change. It took a while for the mulberry to do its thing, but it was only a matter of time, right? Because inside this tree was the inevitability of fruit. Uh, If you line certain things up, if you create the right environment, the tree will respond because that's what's built into the very fabric of the tree. And as Christians, we are not saved by our fruit. But equally true is this, that salvation cannot be expected from a fruitless faith. It's an oxymoron to say fruitless faith. Faith, by its very nature, implies change and it implies growth and it implies Fruit, growth, is certain and inevitable because we have faith in a Savior who defeated death by that same faith in His God. 
There's a story about a man, when he died, he was buried under a marble, marble slab. And this marble slab was uh, huge and thick, and somehow an acorn got into his grave. And over time, gradually, very unnoticed, this acorn began to grow. And eventually, it grew up through the marble. It split the marble open because that's how powerful botanical growth is. Now, if you were to start at the beginning and you were to wager a bet, marble slab or little acorn, which would you wager on? A lot of us might wager on the slab. But there is incredible power in even this little acorn, right? And if somebody has the Spirit in them, if they're a Christian, fruit will grow. Whatever a Christian's life is like, the fruit of the Spirit will burst through. It is inevitable. And that's encouraging because a lot of us look at our sin nature, that nature that we're pulled to, and we just see a thick, thick marble slab, and it's challenging to us. It forces us to ask, is there fruit growing in my life? Is, this, is there a little crack in that slab anywhere? And if botanical growth has that kind of power, then how much more power lies silently in Christians who have the Spirit of God inside them? There's incredible potential to revolutionize your life. And I need you to keep gradual and inevitable together because you could be under the marble slab for a while, but change will happen even if you can't see it today. And change is in your best interest. Because change look, means looking more like Jesus. It means always more life, always more love, always more joy, always more peace, always more of the things that you wanted all along. Father, we thank you for the picture of fruit that calls us to change. Change is a process. But change means that we're growing. It means we're full of life. Father, would you help us to look at ourselves today and ask, where do I need to change? What part of the fruit of the Spirit am I deficient in? Where am I weak? And Lord, would you help us to change our desires in light of the cross? Would you help us always to move towards that life? that Jesus has won for us. And it's in his name that we pray, our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand? And we're going to sing, uh, it is the old rugged cross, and it is that cross that we run to, that cross that we look at, that we adore, and we say, in light of that, how can I go on adoring those other things? And so as you focus on those words today, would you ask God, where do I need to change?
How to Do Nothing. That's our series, and what we're doing is exploring how to live in this reality where Jesus does all the work to save us. If He does all the work, then what are we left to do? And Paul has plenty to share with us about that in chapters 5 and 6 of Galatians. And so, uh, for our purposes today, how to do nothing has everything to do with two pictures. I want to show you uh, the first of two pictures. This is, um, some of you can make it out. It's a Christmas tree. Uh, at It's fully decorated, right? We've got the lights and the twinkles and the, you know, all the Christmas ornaments on there. And um, the decorations kind of make an artificial Christmas tree look like it's vibrant, like it's lasting, like it's alive, but we know, we know it's not, right? January always brings this bleak kind of time where we take a tree like this down, and now the corner is bare, and uh, nothing had ever been growing on the tree in the first place, and it was artificial. It's just fake, right? Everything looks like it's alive and has energy, but there's no life to the tree, okay? Second picture is um, a little, actually, this is an apple tree. It's uh, in this little pot. It's ready to be planted. And to be honest, it really doesn't look like much is going on with the apple tree. It's, it's ordinary. Uh, it's not much to look at. But all I have to say is apple tree, and we have this incredible picture of what the potential is for that to become, right? Because it is living. It is full of energy. And if we, if we give this the right environment, if we give it uh, the right care, if we plant it in the right place, if we water it, it will grow and it will change and it will bear fruit year after year after year after year. Uh, my research said that it's not uncommon for apple trees to bear apples for a hundred years. That's kind of standard. That's a long time. And so, artificial tree versus fruit tree, which is more important? Which will last? Which will make a difference to you? Which will ultimately give you the life you ha- are hardly have to ask that, right? It's this second picture. It's this apple tree. And in our section of text, Paul is going to call us to something like this, to something like this. He's going to call us to that word that, that we've, you know, grumbled about already today, change. He's going to call us to change. The Christian life isn't a stagnant state where we get to stay the same. It's, it's about a process. It's moving from where we were when Christ found us to where we will reflect Jesus in everything we do. It's, it's a process where we move from death to life. It's, it's not a switch. It's a slow, gradual change, change. And that's what Paul points to here. And so I want to frame uh, our discussion on change up this way today. I want to talk about the call to change because it's in the text. The progress of change, that's in the text. The way to change, that's in the text and the image of change. And with each one of these sections, there's a word that I want you to latch onto. So first, the call to change. And the word to remember in this section is the word spirit, the word spirit. There is, uh, we stumbled onto it a little earlier, there's this unwritten rule when you get two or more people together that, that goes something like this, people hate change. How many of you will agree with that statement? 
yes, I hate change, I don't want to change, blah, blah, blah. Organizations are constantly faced with this notion, and they're crippled by it. But there are some organizations that are not crippled by it because they've realized how crazy of an idea it is. And even though you might buy into it, that I might buy into it, that you, you don't like change, all I have to do is really point you to last week, and you will come to realize that you, in fact, do not hate change. How many of you, speaking of this last week, changed your clothes more than once? I hope you did, right? That would be good for you, good for other people, right? How many of you changed the channel this week? Of course you did. How many of you changed your profile picture in the last few weeks on Facebook? Some of you did. How many of you changed a password on that site that you hadn't been at for six months and they made you, right? You didn't want to, but you did. And that will play in here in a, in a second. You, it's almost like you like change because we change all the time. The truth is we love change change. We, we get new houses, we get new cars, we get new clothes, we get new phones, new hobbies, new light bulbs. Have you gotten the new LED light bulbs? We need the new light bulbs, right? But the old ones won't work anymore. The kitchen gadgets uh, are always new, right? We have new TVs, we have new Facebook friends, we get new apps, we get new recipes. The reality is we really do love change, but the thing that makes the difference in whether we change or not, is us. It really isn't true that people don't like change. The truth is that people change all the time when they decide that it's in their best interest to do so. And so in verses 16 and 17, Paul outlines this little battle that's going on between the flesh and the spirit. And the flesh uh, be careful with that word. It doesn't, re- it doesn't just mean the physical part of us. In, we could start reading that and conclude that all of the physical about us is bad. That's not what Paul is after. Um, Paul is after the sinful desire. That's what flesh means. Are we still having got maybe something caught somewhere? Paul is after the sinful desire. We'll hope that that works. Um, and it is opposed to the spirit. And we need to be careful not to make the flesh just physical because that might lead us to a place where we determine, oh, all physical is bad. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about that part of us that is driven away. It wants us to pull away from God and his purposes and into our own purposes and our own desires. And so these two things are opposed to one another. The flesh, our sinful desires, are against the God desires that the Holy Spirit comes in. And the Spirit is all about renewing our Christian heart. The Holy Spirit is about um, entering through faith. And in baptism, we get the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when He enters, He starts to sweep out all of the dust bunnies in our hearts, right? The Spirit calls us to live differently than we've been used to. He calls us to change, change. And one of the things that he's going to do, because our sin desires have grooves that are deep, they're really etched in there. 
But what the Spirit is going to do is He's going to do His best to show you that the change that He's actually asking for is, in fact, in your best interest. In fact, not to change would be probably the worst thing that you could do. It would be like the apple tree staying in the little pot and never blossoming into the potential inside it. And so, number two, the progress of change. And here, the word I need you to remember is law. And we are in verses 18 to 23 here. And Paul, in this section, gives us two lists. The two lists can be framed up as really two conflicting realities. A lot of times it is. But I want to look at them from a different angle today. And I want to see them as Paul's whole vision of what happens as somebody enters the family of Christ through faith and in baptism. And the Holy Spirit comes into their life. And there is this whole process, there's this whole progress of change. There's, there are stages to this change and growth. And the end result then is like this apple tree, this plant or tree with fruit. But you never start that way, right? You never start that way. In the beginning, before you know Christ, people are under this condition of what Paul has already said, flesh, flesh. They're born into human families. They're born in certain places with certain ethnic and cultural and language expectations. And so if you were a person that was born in Bourbon County, America, then the sexual norms and the expectations of morality, what we say, what we don't say, how we dress, how, what, where we go, what we don't, where we don't go, all of those are quite different than what you might expect from somebody who is born in some, some other place, maybe East Coast or West Coast or Europe or some other country. Um, And all of those things that are in us, those desires, are governing factors in our life at this stage because there's nothing to oppose them, right? And so we run after whatever we think it's right to run after. And if those desires, Paul says, are pursued to the fullest extent, then the natural outcomes are going to be the traits that he gives us in this first list. They're traits that are pretty obvious, some of them. There are 15 words in that first list, and you could isolate some of them and and think right away, oh, those are sins of people who don't really know God. Okay, yeah, you're right. But there are other words in that list. There are eight of them, actually. I want you to take a look at these words. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. I want you to ask yourself a question. If you walk into any church anywhere, are those things present? I'm not picking on any one church. I'm picking on all of the churches. And I think Paul, that's what he's doing. They are everywhere in our churches, right? Sometimes, most times, they are more inside the church than even outside the church. And so Paul, the point here is Paul is not picking on immoral people or irreligious people. He's picking on religious people as well. He's picking on church people. He's saying the church people are in the same boat. We're all eaten up by these spiritual desires that lead to spiritual deadness in our life. It leads to pain and it leads to suffering and it ends up destroying us if that desire is left unchecked. That's the point. And just a quick glance at this list impresses on us that that really people who are falling this way are not living happy and productive lives. This is, this is a society that's not really a thriving place to be. 
and left to our own devices, that's kind of where gravity will take us. And more importantly, Paul ends with this phrase in verse 21 for this first list. He says this, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And people, you know, th- that's an easy phrase to get worked up about. And, uh, but, but I want you to think about what Paul is, is saying here, what, what's going on. When God comes to establish his rule for eternity, he establishes his kingdom for eternity. We call it heaven, right? The people who have governed themselves their whole lives with no opponents. They've, they've fought no inner battle within. They've always chosen themselves over, over God, over anything else. They've, always, they've never established any discipline in their life. They've always just followed whatever urges they had at the time. When God comes to establish his kingdom, a great question to ask is, do you think heaven will fit those people? Pretty obvious answer. No. It would be surprising if they fit, if they were in line with the kind of place that God is going for. But then there's this whole other side. The gospel comes into the picture. And through the gospel where Jesus sacrifices himself and provides payment for the penalty of all these sins on the first list, we gain a right standing with God. And it is as if we've never done any of those things on the first list, even though that's kind of what our life still looks like. That's the grace of God, right? And so when we come to Jesus by grace, through faith, in baptism, one of the things that the scripture says is that we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is God living inside of us. And the Holy Spirit is not content to let us continue to operate in such a way that will bring about all those things on the first list. They result in pain and death and suffering. He doesn't want any of that for us. And so God and his son Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit are interested in making us new and different and reshaping us into people that actually are fit for heaven when God comes and establishes that realm. And so we need to change. It's in our best interest to change. And so the Holy Spirit's call leads us into new actions and then gives us ways we can mark our progress. Paul calls them fruit. He lists nine qualities that no one can really do effectively if they're living by their own prompts in this life. But progress is made towards the qualities on this second list as we give more and more control over to the Spirit. Because when the Spirit is at work in us, the fruit just kind of begins to appear. And we change into people who match up with how God wants his world to look. And so these signs of spiritual life are the second list. Uh, Just a quick thumbnail sketch. Again, both of these lists, we could spend a whole sermon on just the list, and we could spend whole sermons on just the little traits in each one of these lists. But in the second list, Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit is this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Maybe those aren't new to you. Maybe you've heard that list before and you can right away see that there's a vast difference between those two lists the difference is the same as an artificial tree versus a real tree and so the course that paul lays out here is a progression he says we start off and we are our own lord i'm my own lord i'm calling the shots and then all of a sudden we are introduced to the gospel the gospel changes us 
We make Jesus our Lord because we are saved by grace through faith in baptism for good works. And then from then on, the Spirit helps us make changes so that we are less and less our own Lord. And now every day, more and more, Jesus is the Lord that he needs to be in our life. And the more corners of our heart that we can take through that process, the more mature we are, the closer we are to mirroring God's nature, the more we will line up with this world that God wants to create for eternity, the more we will be fit for heaven, the more we will look like a fruit tree, an apple tree that is fully mature, full of fruit, ready to give life to those around us. And the progression here, the word that I need you to understand is the word law. That's not evident right away, but look at verse 18. Where did we start? We started when we weren't led by the Spirit and we were under the law. And Paul says, we need to go on a progression. And the progression is going to take us from living our own way to meeting Jesus and making Him our Lord and living like he wants us to live, so that it brings about all of the things on the second list. And how does Paul end that second list? He says, against such things there is no law. And so we go from being under the law to living in a place where we don't even need the law, because when you live by love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, you don't need a law anymore. Finally, uh, the way to change. Not finally. I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> There's more to go, okay? Uh, the way to change. That, that's easy to say. I mean, go through that process. But how do we do that? The way to change. And the word to remember here is adore. Adore. How does it work to change? How do I move from one list to the other? And one of the things that I need to point out is that it's not just about salvation. This is not just a, 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 the kind of thing where... I give my life to Jesus and all of a sudden I'm jumping to the second list. No, that's not it. There are plenty of people who love Jesus, who are following Jesus, who are saved people, who are spending a lot of time on the first list, and I'm one of them, okay? And conversely, there are a lot of people who don't know Jesus at all, but they're pretty loving and they're pretty gentle. So it's it's not about salvation, it's about growth, it's about maturity, it's about sanctification. And so how do I get to the point where uh, my life is more about the second list than the first one? How do I get to the point where fruit is normal instead of deadness, that I'm not just an artificial tree, but I am a fruitful tree? And it's here in verse 16, Paul says, he he, he doesn't say, do not gratify the desires of the flesh, but he says, you will not. And there's something there. Our first reaction when we decide to change is just to try harder. And there are certainly places where that's important, just to, just to grit your teeth and try harder. But in this text, Paul hits on a deeper discipline that is the main target if we want real and lasting change. And the word is found in the word desires, desires. It's a, it's a word that in the ESV is used in verse 16, verse 17, verse 24. Um, In the older versions, if you're reading from the King James, the word is the word that's translated lust. Do not lust for the flesh, okay? Um, And 
it's the, all of those translations are kind of unhelpful because they're only partially correct. So if we divide the word epithumia into its parts, thumia is in fact desires, and then epi that we tack onto the front of it is like uh, in addition to or over and above. Um, and so at the end of a book or a movie that you've read or a, a movie that you've seen, a book that you've read, movie you've seen, yeah, you know how that works. Okay. Um, there might be an epilogue. And so, break that down. Log is from logos. It means word. Epi means in addition. So, an epilogue is word, additional words. It's the story after the story. Okay? So, an epithumia is desires in addition to the desires. Desires over and above the desires. They are super desires. They are abnormal desires. Or we can make it simple and we can just say over desires. And our over desires are where we have to focus all of our resources if we want to change and become the people that God wants us to be. And so the logical thing to think about epithumia is that there must be a lot of bad things that I over-desire. I mean, maybe, maybe I drink too much and I over-desire that and so I shouldn't do that. Maybe I, uh, I, try, I hit people when I get mad and I, you know, I shouldn't do that. Uh, maybe I worry too much. I over-desire about uh, worry and what's going on in my life. And so uh, I shouldn't want to desire those things so much, so I won't, and so I'm going to grip my teeth and really try hard to quit, right? But here's the thing that you need to chew on here. What if our problem is not the over-desire for bad things? What if our problem is the over-desire for good things? I think that's where most of us actually live. We all have things in life that are important to us. They're good things. They're blessings from God. They're gifts that He's given to us. Think about those good gifts that you desire. You desire the respect of other people. You want love from other people. You want happiness in your life. You want joy in your life. You want kids in your life. Or you want family in your life. You want food in your life. You want sex in your life. You want accomplishments in your life. There are a whole host of things that we could put in there. And all of those are fine gifts. They are given to us by God to enjoy. But think what happens if we pick any one of them and we begin to over-desire that thing. When we put them on a level that they were never intended for, then we make them overly important and we ask them to do what they were never intended to do. We ask them to be our value and our worth and our happiness and our joy and our peace. And when we do that, it's impossible for us not to be led back to those things on the first list. And so what do we do? The answer stems from that thing that we adore. That's why we need to remember that word. I could put it this way. You have to change the thing that you adore. Um, We could put it in a really, really corny way to say this. We could say this. To win the war, change what you adore. Thank you very much. I worked all week on that. Appreciate it. Yes. Uh, But it's true. Do you want to lose weight? Then you have to adore broccoli more than cookies. That's just the way it works. It's pretty much that simple. And it's it's the same in the Christian life. The pattern of Christian change, no matter where it's found in the New Testament, is always the same. You could look here. You could see it in Hebrews chapter 12. You can see it in Colossians chapter 3. You can see it in Romans chapter 8. Always, when we are called to change, 
we are told to do the same two things. Number one, we are told to crucify those over-desires. Find those things that are important to you, that are more important than Jesus Christ. Those things are the things that are creating the spiritual deadness in your life and crucify them. In other words, demote them so that they're not as important to you as Jesus is. And so to do that, we have to look around in our life and we have to look at those things that are important to us and what we adore and we have to see the cross at the same time. And if we have to ask ourselves a question, if I have a savior that has done this much for me and loves me this much who would die for me, then why do I feel the need to run after this other thing so much to the point where that's where I think I will get my happiness and my joy and my peace and my love from. No, I have a Savior who died on a cross. Demote that thing you adore, crucify it, and take it to the cross. Number two, we have to walk by the Spirit. We have to live by the Spirit. We have to keep in step with the Spirit. That's what Paul says here in verse 16 and 17, also again in chapter or verse 25. And if the over-desires in our life are what cause destruction in our life, then there's, some, there's somebody else here in the text that has these kind of over-desires, but it's a completely different kind of thing. Paul doesn't write it. It's not in the Greek text. It is in the English text. But in the Greek, he writes it very carefully because he says this, the Spirit, he wants to imply that the Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit, also has over-desires. Now, that's not really even possible. You shouldn't really even have to say that the Spirit over-desires something like it would be a negative thing. And yet, the Spirit absolutely does over-desire something. The Spirit, in your older versions, does lust for something. What does the Spirit desire? It's found in verse 24. There's a little hint. Those who belong to Jesus... That gives us a hint. Those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh, the sin desire, and are running towards Jesus. And that's what you have to desire. That's what we have to lust for. That's what we have to adore. Let the Spirit help you lust for the thing that He lusts for. Desire the thing that He desires, and it will throw out all of your other desires. And so keep in step with the Spirit. doesn't mean just try harder. What it means is worship. What it means is adore Jesus, because he is the ultimate source of your acceptance, your worth, your salvation. Not your family, as great as they are. Not your spouse, as great as he or she is. Not those good gifts in your life, as great as they are. It's the giver of those gifts who is your, who is your beauty and your salvation. And so the Spirit wants to show you that. And keep you from those over-desires that would take you another way. So, doing nothing today, uh, we could wrap it up this way. Means, I turn from and I turn to. That's how I do nothing today. I turn from my over-desires and I turn to the cross. And number two, I run after what the Spirit runs after. Which is Jesus. I run after what the Spirit runs after. Jesus. This last week, I was uh, checking out some beehives that I have, and uh, trust me, 
uh, beekeeper is probably not what you want to call me. Um, I'm not, I, I am only a beekeeper in the sense that I don't want, to, I don't want him to get away. Stay, <laughs> right? Uh, that's, that's all I kind of do. But I'm out there and I'm checking them. And I, there's this little grove of trees where my hives are. And uh, I realized that one of these trees is just loaded with this fruit. I, I've never noticed it before. I've been out there about three years, and it's never had fruit on it before. And so I plucked one off, and it's, it's super good. And so I don't think much about it. And later, my dad comes into his backyard where my hives are, because why would I keep them in my backyard? I don't want to get stung, right? That's dumb. I keep them in my bad, dad's backyard. So he comes out, and I say, hey, do you... Do you know you had a fruit tree back here? And he looks at it. No, I never knew there was a fruit tree back here. I, I mean, we, it's not that they didn't know the tree was there. It's just that we never knew that it had fruit. Like it was not a fruit tree. It never fruited before, right? Okay. <laughs> the first service thought that was funny. I don't know why. And you do too. Okay. And I still don't know why, but that's all right. Um, we did some research. There was a mulberry tree, uh, and it, it's a, it ended up being a mulberry tree. And um, here it is. We, it had never had fruit on it before, and all of a sudden it's doing what a tree is supposed to do. It's bearing fruit. And the final thing that Paul gives us in this text is an image of change. And the word to remember is, in fact, fruit. Fruit. Uh, verse 22. Paul for this second list that we are all trying to steer ourselves to through the, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. This second list, he says, all of that is the fruit of the Spirit. And Tim Keller in his commentary on Galatians talks about the nature of fruit and how fruit relates to change and how it helps us. And, and it's probably why Paul picks up on this picture. And he, he gives us uh, four things. He says, first, change is internal. It's like fruit in that way. You can't go through your own effort and make yourself loving and joyful and peaceful. You can't just grit your teeth and say, I'm going to be peaceful. doesn't work that way. Any more than the mulberry tree can say, I'm going to produce mulberries. Like, It doesn't have to do that. It's just a natural internal part of the tree. In the right conditions, the tree's ability to produce mulberries is built into the very seed that was planted in the first place. It's natural, and not to produce mulberries would actually be the surprise, and we are the same way. Every fruit that Paul lists, all those attitudes and actions are built into us. They are planted in us the minute that we receive the Holy Spirit at our baptism. They are internal to us. And all we do is open ourselves up to the fruit, create the right environment for the fruit to grow and throw, throw off fruit and its natural process. And when we live in step with the Spirit running after Jesus, then for us not to produce fruit would be the surprise. Second, he says change is symmetrical. One important thing to note about verse 22 is that it's not fruits of the Spirit. You'll often hear that said, but that's not what Paul writes. Paul says it is the fruit of the Spirit, and then he lists all these things. And uh, English teachers don't weigh in at this point because you would lower Paul's grade, right? He, he uses a singular subject with a plural predicate. It's, it's kind of like 
uh, somebody writing, he went to the park with themselves. It doesn't work, but Paul does it on purpose. It is the fruit. But then he lists up what it's made of, and it's made up of all of these different traits. So love, joy, peace, patience, all of those things are just different parts of the same whole. Every every trait is just one way of looking at the whole fruit. And so they are all interconnected and they are all symmetrical. It's kind of like the mulberry tree. It doesn't have fruit on just one branch, right? It is loaded. It's, It's symmetrical. All the fruit is because it's a healthy tree. It's everywhere. And because they are interconnected and symmetrical, it means at least this, that if we fail at one of these traits too often, then in all reality, we are failing at all of them because they are interconnected. And what that means is that you need to go through those nine things and you need to pick out the one that you're the worst at. And you need to be honest with yourself and say, that's my level of maturity. Don't look at the one that you're the best at. Look at the one you're the worst at because that's really where you are because they're all interconnected. Number three, change is gradual. And it's implied in this word fruit. Fruit is never sudden. Botanical growth can never really be watched, right? You don't sit out on your lawn on Friday after you mow it and say, I'm going to watch the grass grow. I mean, I guess you could, but that would be just horrible. But by the next Friday, you look out and you're like, I got to mow again. It, the grass grew. Who knew? Um, that, you just can't see it, but, it, but it's happening. And love, joy, peace, patience, uh, that's why patience is there. It, it takes patience to develop these things. And some seasons in your life may be full of growth. Others may be really like it's winter time in your life. And it's a process that's mysterious and it's seasonal and it's gradual and it's invisible, kind of like your lawn. And then one day, maybe even years into it, all of a sudden, just like the mulberry tree, hey, there's fruit there. There's fruit there. Finally, change is inevitable. Because it is the fruit of the Spirit, there absolutely will be change. It, it took a while for the mulberry tree to do its thing, it was, but it was only a matter of time because inside this tree was the inevitability of fruit. If you line certain things up, if you give it the right environment, the tree is going to respond because fruit is built into the very fabric of the tree. And we are the same as Christians. We are not saved by our fruit, but also true is this statement that salvation cannot be expected from a fruitless faith. That's kind of an oxymoron, a fruitless faith. It, it doesn't work. Faith, by its very nature, implies change. It implies growth. It implies fruit. And growth is certain. It's inevitable. When we have faith in the Savior who defeated death by the very same faith in God that he's asking us to have. There's a story about a man who, when he died, um, was buried under a big marble slab. And somehow there was a little acorn that got underneath his grave. And that acorn began to grow. And over time, gradually, very unnoticed at first, the acorn grew. And it continued to grow. And it grew so much that over the years, over the centuries, it actually grew up through the marble slab and split it in two. That's how much power there is in a little 
acorn. Now, if you, if you were to bet right off the bat, which would win? The marble slab or the little acorn? You'd probably pick the marble slab. I mean, I, I don't see how that little acorn can ever split a marble slab. And yet, there is that kind of power inside botanical growth. If somebody has the spirit in them, if they're a Christian, fruit absolutely will grow. Whatever the Christian's life is like, the spirit's lead will burst through. It is inevitable. It may take a long time, but that's encouraging to us because a lot of us look at that sin nature, that sin desire that we have in our life, and we just see it as this big marble slab. There's no way I'm splitting that. It's also challenging. It forces us to ask if we've been Christians more than a few years, is there anything growing in my life? Is there any fruit in my life? Because if botanical growth, if a little acorn has that kind of power, how much more power lies silently in Christians who have God's spirit inside of them? There's incredible potential to revolutionize your life. And these last two you need to keep together, gradual and inevitable. You may be under the slab for a while. It may take a long time, but eventually change will happen, even when you can't see it. And change is in your best interest. Looking more like Jesus always means more life. Looking more like Jesus always means more love, more joy, more peace, more of those things that you have wanted all along. You've just been running after them in the wrong place. Father, we thank you for the picture that calls us to change. This picture of a fruit tree. It reminds us that change is a process. But it also encourages us. It means that change means that we're growing. Change means that we're full of life. And so, would you help us to look at ourselves today? And would you help us to ask this question, where do I need to change? Where do I need to change? In what part of the fruit of the Spirit am I weak? And help, help us to change our desires in light of the cross. Help us to always move towards the life that Jesus has won for us. Help us to be fit for the world that you're trying to create. It's in Jesus' name that your people pray. Amen. Would you stand? And the song is Old Rugged Cross. And that's what we have to run to. That's what we have to uh, let the Spirit lead us to always, over and over, every day, to remind ourselves of what a great thing has been won for us, this great salvation. Would you focus on those words as we sing? And would you ask God, how do I need to change this week? On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners love.
for your worship here today. Let me pray with you and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for the cross. Help us to be led to it every day. Help it uh, remind us of the great salvation that we have that costs Jesus everything. And help us to um, keep in mind what he wants for us is to be people who are after God's own heart, who mirror the very natures and character of God. And so help us to do that this week. And may it be the cross that fuels our desire to change, to be like Christ. It's in his name we pray. Everybody said, amen. You are dismissed.
Last night put the heavy on me. Woke up and I'm feeling lonely. This world got a way of showing me. Some days it'll lift you up. Some days it'll call you bluff. Man, most of my days I ain't got enough.
place in the city might be more than pretty pretty that freaky shine might be more than meets the eye anytime you see the sparkle in the dark you might look deeper deeper it might be more than simply fear yo that smile might be joy that's connected to the spirit the spirit might be contagious if you dare you dare come near it i remember can't forget peace that you can't second guess sparkle as the light reflects we write and pay it forward checks Light shine bright everywhere we go Music for the people to illuminate the show Light shine bright everywhere we go Music for the people making music for the people Light shine bright everywhere we go Music for the people to illuminate the show Light shine bright everywhere we go Music for the people Jesus music for the people Light shine bright Light shine 